Sometimes the lectionary is a funny thing, right? The schedule of readings that we have that we read each Sunday is a three-year cycle that was decided by a group of church scholars. At this point, I think 10, 15 years ago, the current schedule that we have. And so sometimes in the life of the church, this lectionary that was planned so long ago creates something that is a little funny or ironic. And this morning's readings kind of hit me that way this week as we are in a current point in time in the news where all we hear is, or much of what we hear is people fighting with each other disagreements over how we remember history. We see groups of very angry people in the streets claiming supremacy based on race. We see another side responding violently to the violence that's being thrust upon them. And in the midst of all of this, this very unsettled world that seems to be set on breaking itself down into smaller and smaller pieces, falls Psalm 133 that begins with, Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brethren live in unity. Amen. These words of this psalm are, are a hymn, right? Most of our psalms are actually songs. We, they would be sung in worship in the temple, and this particular song would be the song that you would hear being sung as people gathered from all over Israel in Jerusalem to go up to the temple for a feast and for a celebration. And so as families from one city over here and one city over there would come together and join the progression, the ascent up the Temple Mount, they would sing, Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brethren live together in unity. It was a celebration of the different tribes of Israel, 12 of them coming together, different families, different locations. And in this moment, they would proclaim that this unity that they found was like fine oil on their heads. Not just an oil of anointing, but an anointing that is so abundant that it flows from your head onto your face and down onto the robes that you are wearing. The unity that they sung about was like dew on the mountain in a desert. Think about this. Most of Israel is a dry, dry place. And so to wake up in the morning to see Mount Hermon covered in dew was a miracle every time because in this dry, desolate place, this dew in the morning gave a chance for life. And so, oh, how good it is when brethren live in unity. It is a life of abundant blessing and a life that is lived with new beginnings and possibilities, even 
in unlikely places. Our reading from Genesis seems to follow up in this, right? We have the story of Joseph. Last Sunday, Joseph in his many-colored coat is sold off to Egypt by his brothers. And then here we have this wonderful moment of reconciliation when the brothers come to Egypt and Joseph just can't contain it anymore. And he sends the outsiders away and he says, I am your brother and I forgive you. And he hugs them and they cry and they are reconciled to each other. And in this reconciliation, God's plan of saving the people of Israel is able to continue. Because unity within the family has been restored. And oh, how good and pleasant it is. Paul's letter to the Romans points us to a time in the church that maybe is much closer to what we are living in now than what we think. In the early church, the Gentile Christians, the ones that did not start off as Jewish and convert to Christianity, but they were never Jews to begin with, begin to get a little puffed up and say, clearly God has rejected the people of Israel and we are the favored ones now. And Paul is quick to point out and say, God does not reject the people that he has made promises to. Be careful because your salvation came from the very people that you want to reject and exclude. God's mercy is for all. So, oh, how good and pleasant it is when brethren live together in unity. These stories of families and nations that are followers of God are certainly complicated. We don't get to Joseph's moment of reconciliation without hearing the story of his brother's jealousy and betrayal. We don't get to Paul's declaration that God's mercy is for all without recognizing that within the very life of the church, that jealousy and need for favored status had not gone away, but had continued. And so then we turn to the gospel. Perhaps in hopes that Jesus is going to tell us how it really should be. And we start off pretty good because Jesus says, all these rules that we've created about piety and cleanliness and what you eat and how we define who is right and who is wrong, that's not what's really important. What's really important is not what goes in the mouth because, now this is a little joke from Jesus, right? Because what goes in the mouth goes out the sewer tomorrow. Jesus said what is important, what is the mark of a follower of God is not what goes in the mouth, but what comes out of it. Because what comes out of it is what comes from the heart. And a heart transformed and reconciled to God, a mouth will proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and will proclaim God's mercy and love for everyone. But a heart that is not transformed proclaims lies and hatred and division. And then we get the story that I can tell you most preachers wish didn't make it into the Gospels. If you had asked us 
If we had been there when we were figuring out what Matthew was going to write, when he started writing about the Canaanite woman, we would have said, don't you think you can just skip that part? Right? Because this is an uncomfortable gospel. Because what do we have? We have Jesus who's just said all of these rules that we put up to separate us from other people, they don't matter. And then Jesus is right in the position where he could put his money where his mouth was. This Canaanite woman, this foreigner, this other person comes to him and says, Lord, have mercy. My daughter is possessed. Please heal her. And at first he says nothing. And the disciples grumble, which we're used to disciples grumbling, right? They're like, this woman is bothering us. She keeps shouting at us, send her away. Jesus says, I was sent to the house of Israel, to the lost sheep of Israel, and ignores her. But she persisted. And she came again and again, breaking all the rules. This is a woman approaching a man. This is a non-Jew, a Gentile, approaching a Jewish rabbi. And she again comes and says, Lord, have mercy. And he says the words we never wish he had said, Mm -hmm. which is, why should I give the food for the children to the dogs? Calling Canaanites' dogs was a common expression. Where Jesus is is what we might describe as the really wrong part of town. He's gone way far from where good Jewish rabbis would be. This is the part of town that you might hold your purse a little tighter and you might cross the street because everything that everybody has told you is that this is not the place to be. And so when Jesus calls her a dog, he expects that that's the end of the story. But yet, she persists and says, Master, even the dogs eat the crumbs from under the table. Even the dogs eat the crumbs. And in that moment, Jesus declares that she has great faith in what she wishes will happen. And the narrator of the story tells us her daughter was healed instantly. The story for Matthew, and maybe the reason why he doesn't cut this part out, is because in Matthew... The story of Jesus' family history is much more complicated. If you read Matthew from the beginning and you got to the story of the Canaanite woman, if you flipped back to the beginning where all the begats are is what we call it, right? It's normally the part that you try to go through real fast. But buried in there are three very interesting names. Tamar and Rahab and Ruth all foreigners, all not from the people of Israel, all are buried in the very DNA of who Jesus was. And so in this moment, when we are uncomfortable that our Savior does not immediately reach out and has to be challenged by this foreigner, we are left there to figure out what does it mean for us. 
Our colic today tells us, invites us to pray that we may follow daily in the blessed steps of his most holy life, which his most holy life includes a very uncomfortable moment when he was challenged to reconsider what he believed. As the church, what I think this means is when we sit here and we think we have drawn the circle wide enough and we look around and we say we got different kind of folks here and we got different people from different places and, and yes, we have finally included everybody that's supposed to be here, God says, but have you listened for the person outside that is saying, Lord, have mercy? And then our job is to do what Christ did, which is to turn and recognize the faith in that person and to realize that we can never draw the circle wide enough to include everyone, but we can certainly keep moving it and making it wider one person at a time. Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brethren live in unity. Amen. Unity doesn't mean we agree all the time. Mm -hmm. But unity means that we understand that it is not us or the church that decides where God's mercy goes. When they sung that song of ascent to go up to the temple, they would have never imagined that 2,000 more years later in Fairfield, Alabama, we would be sit here singing the same song. When they sang that song and when they made their final ascent, the way that that psalm ends is when there is unity, that is where the Lord's blessing is. Thank you, and the Lord's blessing is life forevermore. Amen. When we sit in a world that argues about how we tell our family's story, how we tell the story as we came together as a nation and as a people, the story that we as followers of Christ tell is big enough to include the complicated parts. We don't write it away. We can remember it. But we also don't create memorials to the division that we overcame. In the church, we are not some statue frozen in time pointed to a savior who was 2,000 years ago. The memorial of being followers of Christ, the symbol that we carry out into the world is not the four walls of this building, is not the cross on the back wall. What we carry out and what we point to is not a dead and long gone savior, but is a living God who has hands and feet and body because we continue to come together again and again and say, oh, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to live in unity. Amen. We break down the points of division, not forgetting them, but learning the lessons that came through overcoming them.
The Gospel of Matthew that begins with Jesus' genealogy filled with all the wrong people and includes the uncomfortable story of the Canaanite women ends with the great commission that the disciples would go out into all the worlds, to all the nations, and make disciples of Jesus Christ. So, it ain't fun to watch the news right now. And we can't turn a blind eye to it. And as we figure out how we respond as Christians, it may be different for each one of us on what we decide that we need to do. But as Christians, as the church, even though it may seem ridiculous, we continue to sing the song that we have sung for thousands of years, which is, oh, how good and pleasant. Oh, how abundant and life-giving is it when brethren live in unity. Yes, Lord. Amen. Amen.